Thank you so much for tuning in to the Inattention Podcast, Episode 2. I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm going to be telling a bit of a story that is a bit illicit, a bit explicit, a very alleged story. When I was in my senior year of high school, my choir went to San Antonio. The year before we went, we voted as a class on three different options given to us by the teachers. And the most expensive option was going to be a $2,000 trip per kid. Thankfully, we had enough logic to not do that and as well not go to the uh, tourist tripe tap beats. What tourist type trap beat with places such as Disney World or Land or whatever we were going to go to? As with, I think, every choir trip, it involves getting up at something like four or five. No, no, no. Four in the goddamn morning. As I arrive, I know most people here have gotten very little sleep. Everyone is getting ready to just stand in the line, have your ticket, get your bag checked in. You're like, oh, oh God, just please get it over with. Honestly, I enjoy planes to an extent. Being squeezed up to two of my classmates while eating some licorice that I paid like three bucks for a quarter ounce of, which, I mean, I've paid worse for a quarter ounce. Either way, it's not ideal. It's not ideal to be traveling with your classmates. I feel a lot of sympathy for my teachers. I would not wish a giant 70-kid group of high schoolers on anyone. (laughs) I would not wish that on anyone, much less my two choir teachers, one of their husbands, and a few of the chaperones. This trip is being paid for out of pocket by these people's parents largely. There will be a few kids that pay their own way through. But largely, these kids did not have to earn the money to make this trip, but they will still have a feeling of entitlement throughout. When something goes wrong, you got to complain to the choir teacher. There's no point in sitting and accepting what's going on around you and realizing that maybe the choir teachers don't have complete control over everything that happens in San Antonio. Most people just want to go get through this line, sit down, and eat some food while we wait for this godforsaken tube to shoot us through the sky. And I see probably one of my best friends at the time, two of them, in a group of maybe four or five guys that I was fairly familiar with. I had one of them as a coworker at my pizza job at the time, but otherwise, I had only seen them outside of school here or there when it didn't include extracurricular activities. Somehow, I became privy to a, a little plot that may or may not have been going on on this day. Someone, <laughs> someone that I knew, allegedly was bringing edibles into the airport. And the plan was to eat them in the bathroom right before going through the TSA. Now, honestly, it's probably not even difficult to get edibles through the TSA. Let's just say that. You know, know, edible food. Edible food. That's all we're talking about here. And I kind of slip in, and I hear that someone in the group has gotten cold feet. This is an interesting opportunity. Within a few hours, we're going to be several miles in the air. And I love looking at the clouds out the window in an airplane ride. 
So I, I begrudgingly talked to the ringleader of this operation, who was, let's call him Nate. Now, Nate was a guy that I had been friendly with in the past, but uh, there were a few occasions where I was burnt by the dude. So in this occasion, I was being a, a facetious little bitch, perhaps a minor of opportunity. So as I go into the bathroom and find out that one of my best friends has gotten cold feet, as I'm handed this baggie with some Rice Krispie treats in it, I take half. I eat my share, I think, so I exit the bathroom. And I run into Nate. And he looks at what's left, and he says, Oh, oh no, you, you ate double what you're supposed to eat. I'm a little freaking out. I really, really would prefer not to be bugging out and having a panic attack on a plane with 80 kids in my high school graduating class and my choir teachers and some parents. As I wait in the TSA line, calmly, calmly pretending that nothing is wrong and nothing is going strange at all, I find out that I actually didn't take twice somehow. I only took half, but instead of just quickly shoving the other half in my mouth like I could have in the moment, I toss it in the garbage and I think, oh well, whatever, this should be interesting anyways. We go through the airport, get some snacks and get on the plane. And I have a nice flight where nothing really happens. I don't really feel anything. And I give it an hour, I give it a couple hours, and I think, huh, strange. So we land in our layover location, and we head into the bathroom again. And this is when I find out that Nate also allegedly brought a, a dab pen through, <laughs> through the airport security. Now, I am not endorsing my actions here by any means. I think I was 17 or 18 at the time. And my actions are my own. My, my stupid, stupid actions are my own. I kind of go into a, a bit of a mode of begging, perhaps. It's akin to it, for sure. Now, Nate, who was a bit, a, bit of a, a bit of a ruffian towards me, one might say, he didn't want to give me any free shit because I wasn't part of the clan. So as he sits in the stall next to me, I take out the $3 I have in cash on me, and I, <laughs> and I stick my hand underneath the stall door, and I just kind of wave it. And he hands me the pen, and he gives me the number one sign. One hit. And I grab it, and I rip it maybe four times. And then I exit as suddenly a large group of men start to come into the bathroom. So I toss it off to Nate, and I don't think I have enough time to get eye drops in. So I'm, I'm a little paranoid at this point. I get out of the bathroom. Instantly, I feel like I'm in a futuristic dystopian story. I'm in a sci-fi location that's so unfamiliar to me because airports are really, really strange places. I'm usually never in an airport. Probably 99.9% .9 of the time, I prefer to keep my feet on the ground. But in this moment, as I scramble over to meet my bag, I'm suddenly hit by the realization of what I've gotten myself into. I head over to the line, and it turns out that we have about two minutes left to get on the plane. And suddenly, a guy I know, who we'll call Brian, is standing next to me in line. 
he sometimes was very mean to other people in an attempt to be getting on some jokes to make some friends. A lot of the things I didn't like about myself I saw in Brian. Unfortunately, I, I made fun of him behind his back. Making that distinction between me and him, ridiculing him to other people, was a small way for me to try to say, oh, I'm not that person. I'm not that guy. I'm nothing like him. When you're very quickly, very baked, allegedly, in an airport, it can be pretty obvious. So he says something about how I'm acting weird. I don't know what's going on. I say some comment that I can't possibly remember at this point. This, this is, mind you, this is before I figured out I was bisexual. Probably made one of the jokes that a lot of guys in high school make about kissing the homies goodnight, hugging your boys, fucking dudes. It's honestly a strange phenomenon, the amount of times that high school guys that really, really claim to be super, super straight guys make jokes about fucking their friends, their guy friends, and uh, smack each other's asses. And So he looks at me, and he says, well, that's gay. I'm not gay. And I just take a deep breath, and I sigh, and I say, you know, Brian, if you were gay, no one would care. And he looks at me and just kind of goes, what? And I say, if, if you were gay, everyone would be happy with it. Everyone would be cool with it, dude. No one would care. No one would mind. And he just kind of gives a strange scoff and he goes, Duh, whatever, and turns around. <laughs> and I admit, this convinced me for a while that he was gay, or at least attracted to guys. I was assured by other people that he wasn't, but you know, if he is and he just wasn't out or didn't realize himself, or if he's not, whatever, that's cool. You are who you are. So I get onto the plane, and there's nothing quite like the feeling of taking off to make you realize that you are a bag of blood and bones and skin and a bunch of wiggly shit that can break. And for a second, I genuinely had to worry that I might have a panic attack taking off. But right when we get off the ground, the feeling of the G's against my back gave me a sensation where I realized, holy shit, I'm alive right now. Not only is my body feeble and weird and gross and gonna die eventually, but right now I'm a fucking alive. And I'm on a plane in the sky? Typical, typical thoughts of allegedly being high on an airplane. Of course, I had taken the window seat. It's not the most comfortable, for sure. Pain in the ass if you have to go get off. I was planning on jumping out of the window. I had grabbed that motherfucker. Instantly, I needed to see the sky. When I'm flying, if I don't have the window seat, I'm going ape. I'm going fucking ape. I want to be like that dude duct taped to the chair because I need to be able to look at where the hell I am in space outside of this metal tube. I had my sunglasses on, and we climb and we climb, and I'm enjoying the view, and suddenly we break through that first layer of clouds. And I put my headphones in, and I start playing the Blade Runner soundtrack, and I play Memories of Green. It's one of those moments where it can remind you that there is beauty in the world worth living for. That's part of why I have such an obsessive connection to music, because I don't think any singular thing 
some movies, but then those movies do have great music attached. May make me feel this way, but music, when it connects and when it gives you those goosebumps that I think we all know, and you suddenly feel like you're sliding down just a tube on a water slide, but the water is replaced with fucking champagne, and you can see every star in the Milky Way in the sky above you. Those moments make me just go, I'm really glad I'm not dead yet. And honestly, it's it's funny that I sometimes have a hard time saying that. I've gotten a lot, lot better. But when you're the most depressed, saying that you're happy to feel alive can feel like a cardinal sin. It can feel like you're going against how things should be. Life is bad. You should feel sad. You should lie down and give up and concede that you are nothing and never will be and never have been and that no one loves you and that love doesn't exist and there's no meaning to anything. And those words will go on and on and on in your head over and over and over. We land in San Antonio feeling beautiful. I'm feeling connected to my friends. And I just take a moment to remember, first of all, traveling. Breaking out of that creature comfort, creature habit bullshit that you have to deal with to survive. It psychologically breaks you out of a lot of things. A lot of anxiety and depression, thought loops and spirals are very deeply ingrained into the habits that we have. Our habits are essentially the basis for our beings. If we had no memory, but we still retained information of habits, if we were able to coast along off of nothing but pure muscle memory rather than true memory, habits would be what keeps us afloat. Just an amazing feeling to remember that the world exists. Pretty good friend I had made earlier on in high school. His younger brother, who I had been friendly with that year, became a much better friend of mine that trip. And I love those experiences where someone becomes your friend for a while. And maybe you never talked before. Maybe it's some stranger you're meeting. And maybe after this experience, even if you continue to interact with each other in some way or see each other or even not at all, this moment right here, you are just humans sharing this connection that is that break you out of your mold. As a kid, I would be traveling primarily just to my grandparents' places. Three out of the four grandparents that I have are thankfully still alive, but these experiences that we shared are long gone. But they're just as real as the present and just as real as the future, in my view, in the view of eternalism. And I would visit my grandparents on my father's side at their cabin. This is a place that was sold 
a few years ago now, I remember reading my side of the mountain in my little twin bed on the second floor of this very nice, pretty modern wood cabin. And the window was behind my head to the left. And all that was on in the house was a single lamp in my room. Behind me, I could hear the crickets, some owls here or there, other fowl and other insects, but definitely the cricket. And once in a while, I could see lightning bugs. I think I heard a wolf once, but I can't remember. And in this moment, as in many other moments at that cabin, lying in that bed, I heard the train whistle off in the distance. the forests and across the farmland. And I felt a sense of calm and peace that I've never felt before or since. My grandfather died in 2020 in summer. It had been about half a year since I had seen him. At the time, I wasn't talking to my father or seeing him. My grandpa was very, very similar to him in many ways and worse in other ways. He didn't encourage my father's dreams at all. My dad wanted to be a musician when he was younger. My grandpa would say that it was stupid. When I was a kid, I loved animals. I would love dogs. My dad said, you want to be a veterinarian. I love writing music. And my dad would say, you're going to be a session musician. I don't want to be a goddamn session musician. Fuck being a session musician. Honestly, I probably would take session musician gigs if I ever became good enough to do them. But the point is that interests in this family are shoved down your throat in a very unique way that I think a lot of people can relate to. Less than a year ago, I was at my grandmother's eating with my, my dad and his then fiance, and I hadn't played saxophone in, I think, a year and I, I like playing saxophone a lot, and I think I'm a talented musician as far as imagination goes, but not when it comes to practice or technical prowess. What I had on my peers, they would usually catch up to me eventually because they would put in the work to improve. And my grandmother said, you know, Seth, they're looking for new musicians for the Minnesota Orchestra. The Minnesota Orchestra. 
if you don't know the Minnesota Orchestra, they're they're uh they're really fucking good. When I say really fucking good, I mean professional. Amazing. Any professional orchestra I cannot get into. I do not have the chops. But the Minnesota Orchestra. The Minnesota Orchestra. No chance. No fucking chance, baby. Not a chance in hell. And I, I look at my grandmother, and she's getting up there in years. So sometimes she'll, she'll repeat certain stories a lot more, more recently in the last few years. The Minnesota Orchestra Grandma. They get paid over 100K a year, allegedly. And I dropped out of my first year of music ed in college. <laughs> and I had to try to explain it to her that this is, I cannot stress enough how much that is never going to happen. Never in a million years. And it's not even like, it's an issue sometimes in my family where when you try to say, hey, 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 wait a second, wait a second. Let me, let me offer a small rebuttal to you saying that I'm going to be the next Gordon Ramsay or I'm going to enter the Minnesota Orchestra and that, that this is a realistic goal to have within the next couple of years. Hold your horses, brother. Hold on a second. We do not need to be putting this pressure on me right now. I know my skills. But when you stress that you know your skills, some people think you're saying, oh, I'm no good. I'm no good. Oh, I'm a failure. I am nobody's dirt on the bottom of their heel in a shoe on a frog on a bump on a log and a hole in the bottom of the fucking sea. It's okay. It's okay to know that you're not the greatest. You're going to have to accept that if you want to keep your sanity. What you can take pride in is yourself for the sake of yourself. I hope that in this coming week, you can take pride in who you are. You can know that those habits aren't concrete. Those thought patterns are not the truth. They do not own you. And if you try hard enough, they will not control you. I hope you have the loveliest week you can and any challenge that arises, you can accept and with as much grace as possible, you can deal with, but maybe you'll take a deep breath first, like I need to right now. I hope you enjoy, of course, this outro song. Thank you for listening. You've been great.
original music by Seth Parlow, apart from Memories of Green from the Blade Runner soundtrack. <laughs> 